chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, I want to read, um, beginning with verse 17. And I think I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. Well, I am going to read to the end of the chapter. And, um, but I won't get to all of it, of course. So Ephesians chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They've become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greed, uh, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil, that the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." That all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And then together we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, it's been a while since you've been in Ephesians, but just at this point understand that that Paul's revving up. And by that I mean he's getting to where he's wanted to go, where all of this has been building. And so so now we're we're beginning to to apply to our lives very directly all that he has been all that he has been teaching us. And so as we move now through the end of this chapter, it's very important that we understand, especially we understand these verses 17 to 24, because they really sum up what he's been talking about and then move us ahead so that we don't become confused. If we don't get these verses, we don't get what's in verses 17 to 24, then we have a great danger of simply becoming legalists that is thinking that if we just do what is right, then God will accept us and all will be well. Uh, or moralists thinking that all there is to the Christian life is, is to live a particular way, regardless of what we believe, and, and that isn't it at all. So he wants to make sure we're grounded. He wants to make sure that we, we understand the why of it and that we have the hope to live out what he's calling us to really live. And I would say this too, that if we don't really get what's here, will either live a life of pride and self-righteousness or will live a life of despair. 
We really have to get what's in these verses in order to really live out in a healthy, spiritually healthy way what he's going to tell us. To live how he's going to tell us to live. We need to really get this. So, very quickly, what's he's been saying? Well, um, John Stott, um, deceased uh, in 2011, I think, he passed away. But he, he wrote a, a very helpful text on, on this letter of Ephesians. And it's called The Message of Ephesians. And then the subtitle is God's New Society. Right? The subtitle is God's New Society. Because what, what's happening as Paul's laying this out is he's telling us that God, by way of what Christ has done on the cross, and by gathering together a group of people, this international community called the church, uh, that he's creating, you see, this new society. In chapter 2, he just simply refers it as a new man. But he means collectively, all of us together being united together, not only united with God through Jesus, but also united with each other. And we're united to God through Jesus because you, you remember that, that human beings have sinned against God and thus separated from the life that is in God. That the penalty for our sin, the judgment that came upon Adam in the garden and all of us since, the judgment that came upon Adam in the garden for going his own way, for disobeying God, for thinking that the evil one had the truth, that Adam could be like God, that is the one who determines good and evil. And so rather than submit to God, Adam went his own way, came under the judgment of God, cast out of the presence of God. Physical death entered, spiritual death, more significantly so, eternal death, really, separation from God. But then God promised a reclamation program. He, he, he promised a, a program of restoration and reconciliation through our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, this morning in our, in our profession of faith, we spoke of Jesus, this, this one who's come uh, to, to, to reconcile, uh, to, to restore, you see. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so through the cross of Jesus, you see, there is this reconciliation. Reconciliation with God. Reconciliation with each other. The cross, our sins are forgiven because he paid the penalty. His righteousness is given to us so that we can stand and live in the presence of God. And then he's also reconciled us to one another because now God is our father. And together we're his people. He said we're fellow citizens of his kingdom, fellow members of his household. We're being built together up into the very dwelling place of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. So for believers, that is for those who believe in Jesus, you see, this restoration is beginning. And we're coming together, you see, as one people to worship God together, to live together as his, as his church. And so Paul starts his letter by saying, remember, every spiritual blessing that we have comes through and in Christ. That we're holy and blameless in God's sight because we're in Christ. Not of our own doing, but because we're in him, we're united to him. And so we're holy and blameless in 
Christ. That in Christ we've been adopted into the family of God, you see. That in Christ we've been redeemed. That is, we've been set free from the penalty and the power and ultimately the presence of sin. We've been forgiven our sins. We have a great inheritance, you see, together with all the saints, this great inheritance of eternal life. And this is all of grace, as he says in chapter 2 of Ephesians. It's all of grace. It's not ourselves. We've been saved by grace through faith. That was necessary because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're enslaved, you see, to the ways of the world. We're enslaved to the evil one. We're enslaved to our own flesh. But God, who is rich in mercy, by the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together in Christ Jesus. It's by grace that we've been saved. He, he broke all of that so that, so that we could be reconciled to him. It was a gift from him. And so reconciled to God, reconciled to each other. And then in chapter 3, Paul prays this, you remember. He prays that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. That is to say, his, his prayer that what God, is, what God is doing through Jesus in us is that we may grow up, we may be mature. We may be restored to the image of God that was broken by sin. Paul wants us to know that. And, and then you say, well, do we have any hope that that could possibly be true? And so he ends that little the prayer with this wonderful doxology benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine. You see, we're not trusting in ourselves for all of this to happen. We're trusting in God for all of this to happen. And so then he comes in chapter 4 and he says, now listen... You need to walk worthy of this calling. You need to live this. You need to live this out. And so he gives us character traits and how we're to live. We're to be humble and gentle and so forth with one another. That's how we live this out. Because we're one body. And then he says he's given gifts to the church to help us grow up. He's given us apostles and prophets. He's given us evangelists and pastors and teachers. Each one has some connection with the truth of God, some connection with the word of God. The apostles and the prophets laid the foundation and, and gave us the scriptures, you see. And, and so there we have the word of God. The evangelists spread the news of this great um, uh, gospel, this truth. And pastors and teachers teach it in the context of, of church life and, and nurture and shepherd the people of God. All for the purpose of enabling us to love each other. How's he put it here? He's, he puts it in verse 15. He says, so rather speaking the truth in love, this is chapter 4, we are, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so it builds itself up in love. See, the, the ultimate in all of this is to have a, a community of people Society of people, as Stott would put it, we're so united together that we can see the very image of God, which is to love. You remember Jesus, he said to his disciples, by this all people will know that you're my disciples. Why? Because you can do great miracles? No. Because you're smarter than everybody else? No. No. Because you love each other. Because if you're united to me and you're reflecting me, what will be reflected is the love that I have for you. That people will see that I love you and people will see that love as you love each other. And so that's this new society. It's 
restored in the context of church life. That ultimately, when Jesus returns in the new heavens and the new earth, that, that's where we'll really see it. But for now, you see, we're to live this out. We're to show it. This restoration, the reconciliation we have with God and with each other. And so now Paul says, that's how we're to walk. We're to live this out. And so what's he say? Notice here in verse 17. He says, now this I say, and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, now notice Paul saying, this I say and testify in the Lord. This is his authority as an apostle to say this. This is the word of God. Um, just parenthetically, that uh, there's, there's a group out these days, it's been around a while, called Red Letter Christians. That is, that we're only going to follow what's in the red letters. That is what Jesus has said. One of these Wednesday nights, I'm going to talk about why... Well, we should listen to what Jesus said. But why listening exclusively to what Jesus said is a bad idea. Because the, all the letters in the Bible are read. Do you understand that? Yeah, we read them, so they're read. But they're also read in color if you want to have a red letter edition of the Bible. Uh, all the words come from the Lord, you see. And so when, when Paul is speaking, he's speaking with the authority of Jesus. These words are God-breathed, you see. And so he's, he's saying, I, I, I say this and testify in the Lord. So you can trust my word in the same way you can trust the word of Jesus. I testify this in the Lord. And so he's saying, here's how you must live. He says... You must uh, no longer walk or live, really, as the Gentiles do. You say, why is he picking on the Gentiles? <laughs> because they were Gentiles. He's basically saying to them, don't live as everybody else lives. Don't live as you used to live before you came to faith in Christ. Don't live as people who don't know Christ. Live differently and, and not in superficial ways. He's not calling us necessarily to live a, wear a particular kind of clothing or not have electricity or whatever it is. It isn't those kinds of things that he's talking about. He's saying in real things that pertain to God, uh, you, your life should be different than the world, if you will, uh, around you. And, and he's generalizing, you know, he's saying, if people without Christ lived consistent with the principles that they hold because they don't know Christ, this is how their life would be, right? So not every unbeliever's life looks like this. <laughs> uh, because fortunately, with God's common grace, even unbelievers don't live, in, don't live consistent with all their principles. Yeah, God still uh, enables them to live ways that can be loving and kind and so forth. But he says, if, if, if those without Christ lived perfectly consistent with the principles that they really hold that are in their hearts, this is what their life would look like. And so he's saying, here's how you're, you're, you're not to walk, uh, if, if you will. Not like the Gentiles, in the futility of their minds. In other words, their understanding about life. Leads to nothing. Leads to no purpose. Because you see, they'll miss all of the eternal things. They'll miss all the things 
that are eternally valuable. And so their lives, because of wrong understanding, will end up being aimless, being fruitless. It's sort of like, remember the preacher, Ecclesiastics. Ecclesiastes, his, his sort of famous little expression is vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Meaningless, meaningless, all of life is meaningless. He explored life into its fullness. He, whether he had all the money in the world, whether he had all, all, all the pleasure in the world, whether he had all the wisdom and education in the world, uh, whether he had all the power in the world. He, he said, I've had all of that, and I, and I realize in and of itself, just that, those things which we think would be great, probably, all of that, without God, that's meaningless. It leads nowhere. It doesn't, because you see, at the end of the day, you know what happens to rich people, smart people, happy people? They die. And it's all over. And so, unless you have this sense of eternity, unless unless you you know what's to come, unless you're geared for all of that, this life is meaningless. You see, if we're not heavenly minded, we'll be no earthly good. Or if we're not heavenly minded, the earth won't be any good to us, you see. We'll miss even that. And, And so he says, their minds are futile. So we just walk through this. Verse 18. He says, well, what, what is this futility of, of, of mind, you see? Uh, by the way, we, we, see, we see the outworking of this futility of mind all the time. All the time in the world in which we live. Even at times in our own lives when we're confused and we're thinking wrongly about life. But, but, but how do we get to this place? Notice verse 18. He said, they were darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of their hearts. And therefore they've become callous and have given themselves up to all kinds of evil practices. So if we read, for instance, verse 18 backwards, we, we kind of work through um, and, and, and find the real cause of all of this. It begins, if you just take the last expression of, of, of verse 18, it begins uh, with the hardness of heart. And because of sin, you see, our hearts are hardened towards God, impenetrable. We, we're not sensitive to the things and the ways of God. That's where it begins. It begins in our hearts. And our hearts include, of course, our minds and our thinking. But, but our hearts include everything that, that goes into who we are, the decisions that we make, how we live, our affections, what we like and what we don't like, what we love and what we hate, what we what thrill us, what thrills us, what, what, what bores us, you see? And all of that sort of goes together in, in who we are in our hearts and then forms who we are and what we do, the decisions that we make, you see. When those hearts, when our hearts are hardened because of sin, then we can't understand, we can't see, we can't love the things of God. What are really true, what are really important, what are really valuable, what are really eternal in the context of life. Due to the hardness, remember, of our, of our hearts. 
And the hardness of heart then leads to a particular kind of ignorance. Now, it's a, what we might say a willful ignorance. It's a culpable ignorance. It's an ignorance that's blameworthy. It isn't the kind of ignorance where you just sort of, sort of unwittingly say, well, I didn't know that. No, 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 no. Your heart is hard, and so you refuse to know it. You, you, and you'll remember this. you maybe recognize this expression from another passage we'll read in a minute. You suppress that truth. It's there. You know it, but... You are willfully, purposefully, intentionally ignorant of all of that, right? It's that kind of ignorance. Ignorance of the ways and the things of God because you, you, you want to put before yourself only those things which you think, according to your own ways, are important and valuable. And then he said, this ignorance then results in a, a darkness. We're darkened in our understanding. That is, we can't see the light. We can't see what's true. And we're darkened in our understanding. And then this leads, of course, to this futility of our, our minds. And the end result of, of all of that is to become calloused, to become hardened. Um, Jeremiah puts it like this, that we no longer know how to blush. That we think things are good when they're really not good. And, and it isn't. And, and we actually think they're good. We've actually become convinced they're good. And they're valuable. But they aren't really. And then we live that life out. And we don't even care that anybody even sees us in the midst of that. We're just calloused. And so we give ourselves over into all kind of, of as he puts it, a sensuality, greedy to practice every kind, of, every kind of impurity. Flip to Romans 1 very quickly, and you'll see the same kind of reasoning, except in a little bit uh, more elaborate way. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Apostle writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's this willful ignorance. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they're without excuse. Now, creation, as we see it, doesn't tell us everything we need to know about God in order to come to him and be saved. But it tells us that he exists. We should wake up in the morning and go, God is, because this is, right? So innately, within, all human beings, no matter what they say, all human beings know that God exists. They simply suppress the truth. Some of them have so suppressed it that if you ask them if God exists, they pass a lie detector test in saying no. Because they've so suppressed the truth. But the scripture says, oh no, they knew. They've suppressed that truth. For although they knew God, verse 21, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Same as what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. And you might think, well, what's the big deal about simply giving thanks to God? Why is that like the big no-no? Why, why does that uh, hard, reveal this hardness of heart? 
Well, because it says that you take the good things of God and you pass them off as if they're your own, as if they came from you. It may be that the greatest sin is spiritual plagiarism. Right? It's, it's, it's taking that which is true of God and from him and, and saying, no, this is mine. That was my idea. That was my way. That's... And so even if you're loving, but you say, no, that was my idea to love. You see? You don't give thanks to God for love. That's suppressing the real truth. Where does this love originate? It originates in God, not in me. Not giving him thanks, not honoring him as God, worshiping him. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And others became idolatry, uh, became idolatrous people. That is to say, they began to worship the creation as opposed to the creator. And then the callousness happens, verse 24. God gave them up to the lust of their own hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their own bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameful acts, shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, and it's this futile mind, to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. You see how this destroys community. They're gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. See, there's this whole culture, this whole world that approves and reinforces living in a way that's contrary to God, that displeases him. And, and there you have it, you see. So Paul's saying, that's the logical conclusion of living without God. That's where it ultimately will lead. And so he's saying to believers, don't live like that. Some things happen. Don't live like that, you see. If you live like that, this new society will never happen. If you live like that, uh, people will not love one another. People will not help one another. People will not be united to one another. Gossip and malice and, 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 and sexual sin and all of this destroys, ultimately, community. It destroys the union that God is making with his people. So Paul's saying, don't, don't live like that. Don't live like that. Um, must live differently. And as I said, and I don't need to labor this, we see it all the time. We see the outworking of this. Uh, our news feeds are filled with it, right? The outworkings of people living 
without God, whether it's politically and war being perhaps an ultimate of that, uh, the injustice against people, the human trafficking that we see, uh, a lack of protection for the most marginal among us, children, the unborn. We, we see it everywhere, don't we? We see it in relationships with people. or even part of it ourselves at times. So the apostle is saying, don't live like this. Don't live like this. That's not the way you've been called to live. He, he puts it very dramatically in verse 20. In the English Standard Version that I read, it, it's probably hidden a little bit, except there is an exclamation point at the end of the first uh, um, expression. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. We could translate it to something like this, but you, but you, you get a sense that there's a real dramatic difference here. But you didn't learn Christ that way. See, it's all about Christ. He says, you didn't learn Christ that way, assuming that you have heard about him. If I can just be a little picky for a moment, the little word about isn't in the original text. It just simply says, assuming that you have heard him. You say, when, when did I hear Jesus? Well, every time you read the Bible, you hear Jesus, right? Every time the apostles spoke, you heard, you heard Jesus speaking, you see. And so, so I pray every Sunday morning. One of, my, one of my prayers is that when I read the scripture or when anyone reads the scripture, they don't hear me, but they hear the Lord, right? That's, that's the prayer. We read the scripture. We don't hear ourselves. We hear the Lord. And so, so we learned Christ. He's the subject of it, you see. And, and we heard him. And, and the truth was taught in him. Why? Because the truth is in him. He's utterly reliable. You remember Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The truth is in him. And so the, the question is, how did we learn him? What did we hear? What's this truth? that will enable us then to live as we're to live. We're not to live as the Gentiles live. We're not to live the way we used to live before we came to faith. So he's saying, saying, saying this. Here's what, here's what we've learned. Here's what we've heard. Here's what we've been taught. Here's the truth. Uh, verse 22. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He says, here's what you learned. When Christ came to you, here's what you learned. You learned there was an old self. That is the self that was attached, if you will, to Adam and his sin and judgment and corruption and all of that. That old self, you see. That pre, if we could use Jesus' term, born again self. That old sinful self. That self that was alienated from the life of God. That self that was in darkness. That self that couldn't see the things of God and so lived in the futility of its mind. Aimless, meaningless life. An old self, remember that person Jesus talked about in our Bibles, we refer to him as, as, as the rich fool. Remember? He had all this, all this wealth. 
And so he looked at all of that and in the futility of his mind said, here's what I need to do. This will keep me forever. And so I just need to build bigger barns. If I just can accumulate this stuff, that's my life. If I can accumulate this stuff and keep it, then I'll be set. This will be great. And Jesus said, no, he's a fool. His mind was futile. It led him wrongly because he didn't see the eternal. Because while he was rich in the things of the world, he wasn't rich towards God. He had nothing. And that night he would die. Then what? He'd say, I missed it. I missed it. Well, that one we call the rich young ruler, the rich young man comes to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And there you go back and forth about the commandments and, and his life and all of that. And, and, and Jesus, in Mark's gospel, says, looked at him and loved him. He says, this is what you need. Sell everything that you have. Give it to the poor and come and follow me. Because it's all about me. It's all about leaving. Repenting. It's all about leaving all that behind. And following me. It's, it's all about realizing what's really valuable. Eternal life is really valuable. The stuff that you have. And again, I'm not saying go out and sell everything that you have. But the stuff that we have isn't eternal life. You see? It's, it's nothing in comparison to eternal life. And this guy didn't get it. He looked at his stuff and he thought about eternal life. He thought about following Jesus. I can have eternal life if I follow you. But then I'd have to leave this. And he couldn't leave it. He lived in the futility of his mind. And so don't do that. That's the old self that lives like that. So there was an old self. And that old self was enslaved to sin. Jesus said, John 8, 34, if you sin, you're a slave to sin. If you practice sin, you're a slave to sin. You're enslaved to it. That's the old self that was enslaved. And now Jesus said, here's what you learned. Paul says, this is what you learned when you learned Christ. This is what you heard when you heard him. This is the truth that you were taught in him. There's a new self. And this new self, you see, is being created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This, this new self is the self that's born again. This, this, it's the new self that's in Jesus. And there's something happening. In Romans, in chapter 6, we learn this, that when Jesus died, something decisive happened, actually happened for all those, we could say this a number of ways, all those who are in him, and we know those who are in him would be those who would come to believe in him, so however you want to say that, but something decisive happened on the cross. In chapter 6, verse, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. See, on the cross, we're freed, redeemed, freed from sin. The, the actual Death of Christ freed us, you see. Freed that old self. Verse 17 of this same chapter in Romans. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin 
have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. You see, when, when it says earlier in Romans 6, when Christ died, we died. When he rose, we rose. And we rose to newness of life. Sin, its penalty, its power taken care of. So we could be freed. Freed to what? Free to live. Free to live how? Free to live in righteousness and holiness. And so Paul's saying, when you learn Christ, what you learned was the old self is dead. The new self is alive. And you go, well, it doesn't feel that way. <laughs> A lot of the time, it feels like the old self. And, and he says, yes, I, I get that. So here is the ticket. He says, verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, created in, after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He says, here's what it needs, you see. This true righteousness and holiness, you need to be renewed in the spirit of your mind daily, all the time. Being reminded that this is really true. One of the reasons say this often, one of the reasons that we gather together one day in seven is A, because that's the way we're wired. It's the pattern of creation. Work six, rest one. Rest doesn't mean we take a nap. I should have told a few of you that a few minutes ago. Uh, rest doesn't mean that we take a nap. Rest means we find contentment. And the way that we find contentment is to realize that it doesn't depend upon me, it depends upon God. That he's the one ruling and reigning, not me. And so God has wired us so that one day in seven we stop all of that and we gather together and we think about him and we recognize again, we're renewed in the spirit of our minds that it doesn't depend upon us, it depends upon him. It isn't what we've done, but what he's done. And so we look to him and, and, and everything gets reoriented one day at seven. And not only do we look at him, but we look at each other. And we go, this is really working. There is really a gathering of his people. There really is a restoration of this. I really do love you. You really do love me. We're really in this together. Now we have some little tips from time to time, but we work them out. Why? Because we're a body together, you see. And we go, oh, yes. And that gives us, that gives us hope. And then we go through the course of our week and we take this word and the word that continues to inform us day after day and it, it renews us and reminds us. Again, I don't know about you, I sort of do, because I know about me. And I know that at the point of many temptations, I'm not thinking, oh, this will be easy because I'm the new self now. The old self is dead. I don't feel that temptation at all. Right? I don't want to yell at you. I guess I do. <laughs> you know, I don't want the glory for this. Oh, yes, I do. I don't want. Yes, I do, you see. Uh, and so at that moment, what has to happen? I have to think about it. But I can. Why? Because I'm no longer in darkness. Why? Not because I'm all that. Not because I'm all that. But because the darkness has been flooded with the light of Christ. I didn't do it. He did it. 
And so here I find myself with the light of Christ. And then so it, it helps me. I, I'm re- being renewed all the time, you see. And do I sin? Yes, of course, sadly. But there are times I actually don't. There are times when I, I actually follow Christ. And why? Well, because the old self is gone, the new self has come, and my mind is no longer, the thoughts are no longer meaningless, but now they're meaningful, and they lead me to a meaningful life and existence. And I say all that to say that we're coming upon a section beginning with verse 25 of Ephesians 4 that will take us through many do's and don'ts, many how-tos and how-nots, what to do, what not to do, all of that. And if we take that just as do's and don'ts, as we take that as this is the way I must live, and we try to suck it up and willfully do that on our own, we'll either become self-righteous because when we do it, we'll pat ourselves on the back, or we'll become discouraged because we won't do it, and we'll go, see, this really doesn't work after all. But, but, but if we... If we understand that what we're being called to is to live now according to the new self, the new heart, then we'll have hope. And when we do it, it won't breed self-righteousness or pride. It'll breed gratefulness and thanksgiving that God is actually at work in us. J.I. Packer puts it like this. He says, the believer's holiness is a matter of learning to be in action what he already is in heart. In other words, it's a matter of living out the life and expressing the disposition and instincts that God has wrought in him by creating him anew in Christ. Holiness is the naturalness of the spiritually risen man, just as sin is the naturalness of of the spiritually dead man, and in pursuing holiness by obeying God, the Christian actually follows the deepest urge of his renewed being. Did you get that? He's just saying, live out who you now are. You weren't, but because of Christ, you are. Now live this live this out. Jesus would say, you've been born again. You you have a new life. Paul would say, you're a new creature in Christ. You've died and you've risen. And now he says, live that out. Live that out. Impossible to live that out in arrogance. You didn't do it. But it gives us hope. And so even when we fail, we say, but, but, but I can, I'm forgiven. I, I pray, I confess my sins and, and, and forgiven. And, and now I can ask that God will help me. That he'll help me. That he'll help me live this out because I want to. Why do I want to? Because, well, I've been made new in Christ. That's why I want to. We must remember this as we continue. Let's pray. Father. I pray for all of us that you would help us, that we would really get this, 
It would help me to really get it. To really see that something has happened. That we really have been made new. Because of the work of Christ. That our hearts really have been changed. That the old self really is gone and the new self really is here. Help us to understand that. Please transform us by the renewing of our minds so that we will not be conformed to the world, but rather that we would live in such a way that would be pleasing to you to to, to show that there really is something new here and that will give us hope even for the world that is to come. So please, I pray, help us renew our minds by your word. And this I pray in Jesus' name.